The following audio comes from the National Disciple Making Forum by Discipleship.org. The theme was relationships, and Lionshare hosted a track called Making Disciples in the Generations and Vocations. That's where today's audio was recorded. Dave Buring led this track for Lionshare's team, and he's written a great four-page summary of his core teaching on transformation. It's called The Process of Transformation, and it's available for free through our website. Make sure to go online and download this PDF at discipleship.org slash lionshare. That's discipleship.org slash lionshare. Can I go immediately to Psalm 78? And if you would just take a moment and let these words kind of sink into your spirit. Oh, my people, listen to my instructions. Open your ears to what I'm saying, for I will speak to you in a parable. I will teach you hidden lessons from our past Stories we have heard and known. Stories our ancestors handed down to us. We will not hide these truths from our children. We will tell the next generation about the glorious deeds of the Lord, about his power and his mighty wonders. For he issued his laws to Jacob. He gave his instructions to Israel. He commanded our ancestors to teach their children so the next generation might know them. Even the children not yet born. And they will in turn teach their own children. So each generation should set its hope anew on God, not forgetting his glorious miracles in obeying his commands. We see over and over in scripture this command to teach generations. In Deuteronomy 6, when God first gave his law into the hearts of people, he said, make sure that you repeat them as you're going and as you're coming in the home. Put them in the hearts of your children. The psalmist says in Psalm 17 and also Psalm 145, don't let me pass until I can proclaim your mighty acts to the next generation. And we see in scripture this pattern where when one generation does not make the handoff to the next it all falls apart. In Judges, we see this cycle and another generation grew up that did not know the Lord nor remember his mighty acts on behalf of Israel. If we do not pass the baton to the next generation, trouble sets in again. We've got to pass on what we know about God's goodness, his faithfulness, his mercy, his grace, his justice to those coming after us. 2 Timothy 2.2 has been such a cornerstone verse for me. When Paul says to Timothy, the things you've heard me teach amongst reliable witnesses, teach to faithful men who will be able to teach others also. There are four generations in that verse, Paul, Timothy, faithful men, and others. And now sometimes those are spiritual generations. It could be a 30-year-old passing off what they know of the things of the Lord to a 38-year-old. It's not necessarily a biological generation. But we also have to make the handoff of faith to the biological generations that are coming after us. We have to care about the next generation. We have to teach them the character of God. We have to help them understand the promises of God. We have to help them know the perspective we have on life. We've got to hand them the torch of the mission of Jesus Christ. We've got to help them make disciples to the third and fourth generation. And Jesus' last command was go make 
disciples. I think we're all here today because we're, we, we're in, right? Like we get that, we embrace that, we love it. Um, I want to draw our attention to the word make. Jesus didn't say go find disciples. He said go make disciples. And that tells me it's a lot of work. I know a lot of times in church, I try to go find disciples. I need, to, I need somebody to lead a small group. Let me go find a disciple. I need somebody to help in our kids' ministry. Let me go find a disciple. I need somebody to lead a missions team. Let me go find a disciple. And sometimes I look around and I'm like, I don't have anybody that can lead anything. And Jesus is saying, hey, you have to go make disciples. They don't just pop up. And that means it's going to take a lot of time on the calendar and time in conversation. It's going to be an investment of emotional intelligence and emotional fortitude. And even a little bit of our sanity might get sacrificed. It's hard conversations. It's difficult situations. It's making disciples. I think a lot of times when we think about the next generation, we need to think more like missionaries. You know, when we send a missionary into another context, we help them understand the language and the customs and the traditions. We know that we have to figure out a way to take the gospel and contextualize it in a way that they will hear it. And sometimes I fear we don't do the same thing with the generations coming after us. We just assume that we can speak to them in our language and we can in implement in their lives our culture and our customs and our traditions and they should just get it. But the reality is the generations coming behind us are living in vastly different times and circumstances than we are. And if we don't get into their shoes and get into their heads, we will not be able to proclaim the gospel in a way that they hear it. You know, Paul said, I become all things to all people so that by some means I might win some. When Paul was in Corinth, he worked. He worked hard as a tent maker because in Corinth, you were not considered to be a contributing member of society unless you had a profession. Meanwhile, when he goes to Athens, he's able to just stand at the Areopagus and philosophize because in that cultural context, you could be a philosopher and be considered a contributing member of society. Paul worked hard to contextualize the gospel in a way that people would hear it. And I would argue that if we want to win the minds and the hearts of college students and young adults and those coming after them, we've got to think like missionaries. We've got to do the same kinds of hard work that they do because we're going into a different culture. I would argue, and I'm in these conversations a lot, I'm in a church that's about 70% single and under the age of 35. And we're in Washington, D.C. on Capitol Hill with Republicans and Democrats and everything in between and on the other sides. And it can sometimes be incredibly messy. This is the world I walk in with millennials. And I, I hear people say this next generation, they've, they've rejected the gospel. They've walked away from the gospel. They're hostile to the gospel. And my response back is that maybe they have not rejected the gospel. Maybe they have not heard it in a language that they understand. So how do we quit blaming the generations coming after us and do the hard work to proclaim the good news of Jesus to very optimistic generations that are coming behind us.
All right, I want to... Um, I want to say this. There is a tendency to, for us to stereotype and generalize. Um, and I will do that today. Um, because I don't know of any other way to talk in categories that help us understand. And so what I want to do, are, do we have any millennials in the room? Just raise your hand. Okay, I want you to look around at these folks. And just out of curiosity, is there anybody in Generation Z in the room? Okay, I just look to you guys to hold me, keep me honest. So feel free to go to them afterwards and say, what did she get wrong? Because I'm going to get some things wrong. Um, and I acknowledge that. But I also want to talk about some things that may help us as we move forward. Now, when we talk about generations, I think there are four main things that shape generations. Um, there are historical markers Things that happen historically, economically, and politics that shape a generation. So we'll talk about some of those today. I think technology, more and more, is a shaper of generations. The technology that is emerging is going to change the way that we relate. It's going to change the way we think. It's going to change the way we process. Number three, entertainment. Uh, Andrew Fletcher said, let me write the songs of a nation, and I care not who makes its laws. We look to politics as solutions or as a hindrance when really it's the entertainment and the culture that is driving the way people think and the way people act. Looking at entertainment. And then finally, parents. The parental influence is still the most important influence in an emerging generation's life. And so when we look at the parental influences that are coming, then we know we make some predictions about who's coming. Let me do a quick overview of the generations, and Sonia, this is where we can start kind of clicking through. I've got some pictures of different generations. This is a picture of the greatest generation. This is my grandmother's generation. She just uh, turned 100 a couple of summers ago. This is the generation that grew up with World War I and World War II, and you can kind of click to the next slide. Um, they lived through the Great Depression and through Prohibition. Um, they were incredibly cautious and thrifty. They focused on family and career. It wasn't about their personal goals. It was about sacrificing for the greater good. And in this generation, there was no network TV. We saw the rise of the radio and the rise of the expert on radio. Coming after that was the boomer generation from 1946 to 1964. They came to age in a very robust economic expansion. The historical markers of this age group included things like uh, the rise of television, the Vietnam War, the Watergate scandal, Woodstock. Entertainment was stuff like Andy Griffith, which I love. My 11-year-old niece loves watching Andy Griffith, and I think that's awesome. Um, Andy Griffith, I Love Lucy, uh, the magical world of Disney. Tinkerbell was coming on the televisions every uh, weekend night and putting the pixie dust in place. Boomers grew up believing that the world was theirs for the taking if they worked hard enough, and the Russians didn't blow them up. Um, they, uh, we saw a rise in marketing to the teenage, like the teenager was created. Marketers kind of created this idea of the teenager and began speaking directly to them. Um, it was a period of affluence, and because of that, there was a shift from being a part of a whole to self. Generation X came after that, 1965 to 1980. That was my generation. When we think about the things that shaped that generation historically, the Iranian hostage crisis, AIDS, the Challenger explosion, the Berlin Wall. Um, it was uh, a time when um, the Sony Walkman 
was on everybody's Christmas list. Um, it was the rise of gaming systems and Pac-Man and MTV. Uh, it was a time when people would have VHS and be able to go to a store and rent movies to watch on the weekends. Culture of latchkey kids, of kids seeing pictures of missing children on milk cartons. It was a time of the AIDS crisis. We were the squeezed generation. We came about in a time when the boomers had kind of taken over the world and the millennials were coming on strong behind us. And what that caused us to do was kind of sit on the sidelines and just make color commentary. Um, you see it in the rise of different kinds of entertainment. It was the rise of shows like Seinfeld, Saturday Night Live, Mad Magazine. There was a lot of parodying of culture and of news. Behind us was the millennials from 1980 to about 1995-2000, and, and sociologi sociologists are still kind of playing around with some of those time frames. Historical markers, they came of age during the Columbine shootings, during Y2K, September 11th attacks, the legalization of gay marriage, the election of the first black president. These are things historically that have marked and shaped the minds and the lives of millennials. Entertainment, they had cable television, they had DVD, and began to see the, um, the emergence of on-demand entertainment. Um, technology, they were owning, I, they, they've seen this transition from, well, they didn't see the transition from the Walkman, that predated them, but they had the iPhone, and then they had the, or they had the iPod, and then the iPhone, and then the iPad. Um, their mantra is, can we fix it? Yes, we can. They grew up with Bob the Builder. Um, I, I had a, a moment the other day. We were interviewing at our church a young lady who's a millennial who works in, um, in women's issues internationally and bringing education and opportunities to women around the world. And, and in her interview, uh, at the very end, it was kind of like her last big point. She said, you know, I think that we approach life as a zero-sum game where there are winners and there are losers. And we've got to understand that if we just all work together, we can all win. Here's my Gen X self going, that's the most naive, stupid thing I've ever heard in my life. You have not lived long enough. <laughs> but in that moment, I saw the difference between my Gen X brain and the millennial brain. They believe truly, if we all work together, we can all win. And that's one of the things I love about the millennials is their optimism. And not just a, a pie in the sky, but a commitment to working hard and working together to make it a reality. Um, they also had heavy parental involvement. So you've probably heard the term helicopter parents. Um, so their parents were very, very involved in their lives. All right, we're going we're gonna to talk about the millennials a little bit more, but I want to skip ahead a little bit and give some previews um, to Generation Z. Generation Z is the, the ones that are coming up now. They're in elementary school, middle school, high school, uh, sometime between 1995 and 2000 to about 2010 is what sociolo sociologists are saying. The largest percentage of the U.S. population, by 2020, they will account for a third of the total population. Um, they're just beginning, the oldest of them are just beginning to enter the marketplace um, now. And uh, then in 2011 to probably 2025, we'll have Generation Alpha. Uh, this is the face of Generation Alpha, <laughs> along with the one after that. 
This is my daughter. I love her expression is the same in every picture. Um, this is my daughter, Sawyer Elizabeth Zempel. She just started PK3 this year, and she's right there at the beginning of Generation Alpha. All right, you can uh, maybe click back to, to uh, the millennials, and uh, we'll talk about them for a little bit. Uh, millennial generation is who I spend the majority of my time with. They're the people that are around my table every Sunday night having dinner. They're the people I, that are in the groups that I'm discipling. They're the ones that I'm leading at my church, both uh, um, because they're part of our church or because they're on my, my teams. Um, they're the ones that I've had the most conversations with, and I feel like I understand the best. This generation has been the most studied, most poked, most prodded of any generation. No generation has been studied, scrutinized, put under the microscope like the millennial generation. And a lot of times we hear words like entitled that have been placed on them. And I just want to push back and say that millennials are simply products of the culture that we have handed to them. They were the first generation that was given a trophy for participating given a toy in their uh, burger bag. They are simply products of the culture we handed to them. It's, they're acting in ways that we have trained them to act. Um, they're very tribal in the way that they approach life, the way they approach work, the way they approach their identity. Technology has always been a reality in their lives. They were always given a choice and entertainment, and they were always given a voice in the culture. Millennials believe they are important. Listen to this statistic. The statement, I am an important person. In 1940, 20% of men and 11% of women said that they agreed with that statement. I am an important person. By the time we jump to 1990, 62% of men and 66% of women agree with that statement. We're dealing with a generation that believes they are very important. Now, there's two ways we can go with that. We can go a negative way with that, or we can see the truth of God, the image of God that is reflected in that statement and build off of it from there. Okay, then what is your responsibility? If you're an important person, what responsibility do you have to reflect God and to contribute to society? And I would argue that millennials have contributed to society and culture in very important ways. If you have a Facebook account and you enjoy looking at your kids and your grandkids and keeping in touch with old college friends on Facebook, you can thank a millennial for that. If you like Tom Shoes or Warby Parker or other socially conscious brands, you can thank a millennial for that. If you appreciate organizations like the Malala Fund that are changing um, life for women around the world, you can thank a millennial. They believe they can change the future, and they're doing everything they can to do it. Um, now, granted, this generation is a paradox. I'm still trying to figure it out. Um, they say one thing to another, or tell me two different things that are completely contradictory on two different occasions, or sometimes in the same conversation. This is a generation that is incredibly consumeristic, and yet they're also incredibly generous. When I first went on staff at this church, my mom was concerned about how I would have money to eat because she didn't know how a church that at that time was largely 20-somethings were going to tithe, much less tithe enough to pay salary of staff. But it's because millennials are incredibly, incredibly generous, and if you give them a cause, they're going to commit 100% to that. That's the other paradox. They seem noncommittal, right? Just trying to get them to meet with you for coffee at 7 o'clock on Tuesday, real hit or miss, 
But if you ask them to sell everything they have and go build an orphanage and live there in Uganda for a year, they're all in. Like they put, put the GoFundMe page up and they're gone. <laughs> Completely in. They're justice oriented and they're compassion fatigued. They want it in a soundbite. They're the Twitter generation. If you can't give it to them in 140 characters or less, they've lost interest. And yet if you give them pat, easy answers with no depth and no texture, then you're not worth listening to. It's a paradox. They're the most connected and at the same time the most lonely. Um, they, they place a high value on authenticity, but then they maintain carefully curated images on social media. It's a paradox. They're wary of authority, but at the same time, they crave mentors from generations that are older than them. It's a paradox. It can be confusing. With the millennials that I lead and I disciple, it's become a joke, and now they'll just own it. They'll say, I know, contradiction. <laughs> I know, paradox. But that's part of the world that we've given them to grow up in. I think to disciple them, there are a few things we have to keep in mind. Um, one, I think discipling millennials, give them an opportunity to level up. Here's what I mean by that. Um, millennials are trained on video games where you complete a level and you get to level up. For those of you that have been a supervisor of a millennial, you've probably been frustrated because they do a project well and then think they're going to get a raise and a promotion. And you're like, no, that's called doing your job. <laughs> but they have been trained, again, by us, that they get to level up. And so finding ways to help millennials level up, creating leadership pipelines where they understand that they get to level up. I think giving them a platform, I know that is a super scary thing because who knows what's going to come out of their mouths. But somebody gave us a platform and we've said scary things before on the platform. Giving them a voice at the table, giving them a seat at the table of decision because I've found that when I've done that, I've learned things. Um, I think giving them a, a safe place for their doubts and their questions like, what if the church was the place people came with questions? And then our presence. I, I really think just being with. I mean, you know, when Jesus called his disciples, he called them first to be with him. I think we have underestimated the power of with. Millennia, you know, you might want to get on to the, the workbook in front of you, the, the, the passage that you have outlined for that day to sit down and go over with them. Just take a moment and be with them. Because when we're with, that gives us the authority to speak a little bit louder in their lives. Um, so th that's just a brief snapshot of millennials. And as I've done this, this forum for the past couple of years, I've done an entire session on millennials. And here's what I want to do right now. I want us to just take a moment to leave the millennials alone. The, again, this has been the most studied, the most poked, the most prodded, picked on, provoked generation, especially by the church. And what I want to do is, first of all, just acknowledge that our, the millennials are now in their 30s. They're getting married. They're having kids. They're leading organizations. They're planting churches, and they're taking the gospel to people who've never heard it before. The millennials are getting older. And what if we as a church could start getting ahead of the curve and looking at the generations coming next? So instead of being reactive, we can be proactive, 
Um, so I want to spend a little bit of time today talking about Generation Z, and then I'll spend a very brief amount of time talking about Generation Alpha, um, and then we'll hopefully have some time for conversation and questions. Generation Z, again, born probably sometime around 1995-ish to um, uh, uh, 2000, uh, 2010 in that time frame. Um, they're becoming a quick, they're quickly becoming a tremendous force in both numbers and influence. And I think if we want to disciple them, we've got to understand the world they live in. So this session from here on out is less like how-tos and more who are they. Um, so I'm going to talk about several different categories um, that, imp imp that impact Generation Z, variables that shape them. The first is technology. Uh, the first gadget that Gen Xers owned was the Sony Walkman. Millennials, the first gadget they owned was an iPod. For Gen Z, it was the iPhone. Gen Z has had the internet in their pocket for their entire existence. For the millennial, technology was kind of a novelty. Whenever something new came out, that was a novelty. For Generation Z, it is not a novelty, it is a tool. It's a resource, it's a way of life. While boomers learned computers at work and Gen X learned computers in high school, um, Gen Z is learning them in elementary school or even younger. Um, millennials were internet pioneers. A lot of them remember playing solitaire on the desktop computer. They, some of them even remember the dial-up modem. But they were the ones that invented things like Facebook, uh, that invented um, online shopping, that kind of led us into the era of Hulu and Netflix and on demand. Generation Z has grown up just believing these are basics of life. Um, they're YouTube natives. It's the first generation that has not had to go to an adult to ask them how to do things. When Gen Z goes to college, they don't have to call mom to say, hey, can you remind me how I'm supposed to make scrambled eggs? Hey, dad, how am I supposed to change the tire? They just Google. They just get on YouTube. They're YouTube natives. Um, they process information incredibly quickly. They are not linear thinkers. They are on apps, things like Vine and Snapchat. They are able to multitask very rapidly, take information in, and do something with it at a very quick rate. Um, neurologists are talking about the way Gen Z interacts with their phones and with information and social media is changing not just the way we interact with one another, interpersonally, it's actually rewiring the brain. It is changing the brain of generations coming behind us. Let's talk about globalization and diversity. Generation Z is the first generation in this country that is not majority white. Now, when I come to a conference like this, I see a lot of white in the room. And I just want to encourage all of us to broaden our communities, to broaden our friendships, to step into cultures that maybe we're not familiar with. Because if we only disciple within what we're comfortable with and what we look like, our brothers and sisters that are Hispanic and Asian and African American and so many other ethnicities, we, like, we're, we're just going to be further and further siloed. Um, a, a member of Generation Z 
feels like they have more in common with their global peer than their geographic neighbor. This changes the way Generation Z thinks about historical events, about politics, about global realities. There's, because of social media, an 18-year-old in the United States is going to feel a little bit more of a connection with the kid sitting in a refugee camp in Greece that is their same age than they might feel with the 45-year-old that lives right next door to them. Globalization is changing the way they think about culture and politics and history. Media and entertainment, this is one of the biggest drivers, one of the biggest influencers with Generation Z. Um, there is, uh, millennials learned kind of how to be on demand. Um, Gen Z doesn't know a, another way. Um, Amazon, Prime, Netflix, no one is watching television when it actually comes on. I mean, you know, like, I'm committed to a couple of shows right now, and I don't think I've ever watched either of them when they actually came on. We DVR them, you know? Um, I almost said DVD'd them. I, again, I'm thinking in VHS days. One moment when I understood the difference in my generation and millennials and Gen Z is when a millennial asked me, they were talking about the movies that they watched over and over as a kid. And they said, Heather, what movies did you watch over and over again? And it took me several minutes. I was trying to think, what were the movies I watched over and over as a kid? Until it occurred to me, we didn't have that ability. I mean, I, you know, my niece watches Wally like every day, and I watched Wizard of Oz every Christmas when it came on network television. Watched Sound of Music every year when it came on network television. On demand is changing the way that people are interacting and the way that they're receiving information. Uh, Generation Z uses their smartphones 15.4 hours per week. Uh, I actually find that number pretty low. I think that's very conservative. They consume, they consume 13.2 hours of television. So Generation Z is actually watching a lot less television uh, than their predecessors, but they're on their phones. Uh, there's, a, a word f there's a word for the anxiety that comes when you're separated from your smartphone. Did you know this? Nomophobia. If you don't learn anything else from this session, you've got a new vocabulary word, and you can use it like with your grandkids. It, there's an anxiety that is felt when they don't have access to their cell phones. And I, I say they, if I'm honest, I'm the same way. How many times have I grabbed my bottom but worried that my phone isn't in my back pocket? It's called nomophobia. Um, here's one thing that's really fascinating. Everything that they're receiving in media and entertainment is highly personalized. It's highly stylized. If you think back 50 years ago, the whole family was huddled around the television watching I Love Lucy together. When Lucy and Desi were pushing on something culturally, we as a nation were all pushed together. Everyone is watching the same news anchor. When Dan Rather comes on and tells us what is going on in the world, the whole family is huddled around the same television. We were hearing the same news from the same voice at the same time. Now, it is an entirely different situation. Everything from news to entertainment is highly stylized and personalized to the receiver. I experienced this the other day when I was on Netflix trying to look up 
something to watch. And because my husband and my daughter are our primary Netflix users in our home, I couldn't find anything. Like I was searching for things and nothing was coming up that I wanted to see. I had to create a new account just so I could get it, the, the technology in there to, to put things out there that I wanted to see. And then we had a babysitter come over and she said, Heather, I get on your Netflix account and the only thing that's coming up is histories and documentaries and epic movies. Like, I just want to find a romantic comedy. And then I tried to go over to Ryan's and then all I got were like Disney Channel things. Everything is highly stylized and personalized. I can tell, and I live in, again, I'm in D.C., and so I'm friends with people from a, a, a wide spectrum of political thought. And what's interesting is that for most of them, even though we have access now to more opinions and more perspectives, more ideas than ever before, the echo chambers are just getting louder and louder and more pronounced. So if you are not intentionally stepping out of your culture and outside of your normal voices, you will never even know that there are people that think differently than you. We're moving to a place where there's no longer dialogue about important issues, but monologue. And if there's someone saying something different than you, it's not even going to show up in your Facebook feed. Because technology is controlling and personalizing what we hear and what we see. Um, one new thing about Generation Z is that they find um, social media to be a helpful and healthy platform for discussing ideas. Generation X and those older than me didn't see it as being that at all. It's just a place where arguments happen that depersonalize the conversation. Millennials, I think, have been discipled in you take the important conversation offline. Generation Z is saying that is the platform. It's helpful and it's healthy, right, wrong, or indifferent. I'm finding that there are more and more things that I have these strong opinions about that when I get around the next generation, I'm like, oh, is that just my Gen X opinion? Or is that a godly biblical opinion? Um... One thing that's kind of interesting to think about as you compare millennials and, and Gen Z, think about the literature of millennials. Maybe the most important or influential series of books and movies for millennials was Harry Potter. Harry Potter is all about this kid that has a secret awesomeness to him. He is an important person and just no one knows it yet. And as he steps into that, he's going to change the world. That was the optimism, the importance of the millennial. If we think about the literature, the movies that are being more targeted to Generation Z, that are coming out of Generation Z, we find things like The Hunger Games, Maze Runner. Um, uh, I just lost the other one. Um, Divergent series. Um, all of a sudden now, it's not, there's still some of that, I'm an important person and I can make a difference, but it's very dystopian. The world is breaking down. It could be because Generation Z came about during a time of economic recession. So there's a little bit more realism that they have or maybe a negative kind of outlook on the world. Uh, let's talk about the economy. Um, you know, my grandparents, I mean, the Sears catalog, 
that was a big deal when you got the Sears catalog. And then Sears gets knocked out by the big box stores like the Walmarts and the Targets. And now Amazon is knocking out the big box stores. Um, millennials came to age in a time of economic expansion, and then they were a little bit shocked when they went out to find a job, found that a lot of doors were closed. So Generation Z coming behind them has seen this recession. They, they've been a part of that. And it changes the way they think about money. Um, just some statistics. Generation Z is saving more. 60% have a savings account. 71% say that saving for their future is important to them. Finishing college, getting a job, and saving for the future are ranked higher than goals of spending time with friends and traveling. That's kind of an interesting shift from the millennial generation. Um, Two-thirds of them say that to get an education, establish a career, and achieve financial independence, that's their goal by the time that they are the age 30. Their ultimate aim is to be happy, and they define that by financial security. Because of this, some futurists and sociologists believe that Generation Z will look more like the greatest generation than all of us that have been in between. And some find that very hopeful. Um, another uh, thing that is, is interesting is that you can't really trust the big brand anymore. You can't trust the, the name anymore. You can't put your faith in just being uh, the most trusted name in appliances because now Consumer Reports is being decentralized. Everybody has the opportunity to comment on your product and its usefulness and its reliability. And so big brands are realizing they're having to change the way they talk about themselves. They find that instead of just banking on their reputation, they have to get the generation to be their spokesperson. Um, speaking of brands, millennials crafted their image through brands. They're a very branded generation. We think of things like Abercrombie and Fitch, other, um, other clothing uh, suppliers. Like it, Millennials were very branded. Generation Z tends, at least from what we can see so far, to see brands as just part of the big machine. Uh, and because there's so much online shopping, so many things available now, they don't have to go to brands to create their community or to create their image. Generation Z, instead of looking at a brand to create their image, is crafting that for themselves on social media. And for community, they're finding that on social media instead of a brand telling them, this is the tribe that you run with. Um, Okay, next is education. Um, this is really fascinating. We're not quite sure how this is gonna go yet, but a lot of people from Gen Z are avoiding college for two reasons. One, they've seen the incredible student loan debt that have trapped millennials, and two, because they realize that there are alternative sources of education. When schools like Harvard and others are putting classes online for free, they realize there's a lot of different ways to learn th things. We can learn stuff differently. Now, in the past, you, you, education was about picking a career for life. It didn't work out that way for me. I went to school for biological engineering, somehow wound up on Capitol Hill, and now I'm in ministry. So I, I was a weird little Xer in that. But I thought when I picked that major, I was picking my career for life. And the way Gen Z thinks about it is that when you pick a career, you're picking an education for life. And what we're finding is that Generation Z, more than any before, is facing this widening chasm 
between information and wisdom. So they can get information anywhere. Information is readily available. They can find information at their fingertips. But we all know that wisdom is very different than information. And wisdom has to come from generation to generation. So the new task of education is not to inform students, but to help them know how to apply the information they've been given. All right, very quickly, culture. Most in Generation Z do not remember the days before 9-11. That one's weird to me when I think about it. They don't remember the days before 9-11. Good news, with Generation Z, drug use, alcohol consumption, smoking, and teenage pregnancy are at their lowest levels. They have a higher moral ethic. Or they're just so busy siloed in their own little social spaces with their phones that they're not engaging in those activities. Meanwhile, mental health issues are on the rise. Higher rates of anxiety and depression in this generation. Um, For Generation Z, the fact that we had a black president is not, not a significant thing. It's just the way it is. Millennials saw that as culture shaping and history defining an important moment that they got to help make happen. For Generation Z, it's like, what's the big deal? Why wouldn't that have been the case? Um, they, they didn't see or live through or be a part of necessarily the move towards the legalization of gay marriage. To them, it's just the way it is. And for a Generation Z kid who is growing up in church who loves Jesus and has committed themselves to a biblical ethic... Just don't see that something is something to fight or to war against. It just is the way it is. Sexuality is fluid. One in eight of Generation Z says that they are not heterosexual. Half of those say that they are bisexual. Seven in ten feel like it's okay to be born one gender, but feel like another. In fact, Generation Z, and again, these are kids that are Christian kids and kids that are not in church. One third of them say that gender is how you feel on the inside. It's not something that is biologically determined by your sex at birth. The way they're thinking about these things is changing. For the um, for Gen Z, consent is the ultimate ethical standard. Not a biblical ethic or a moral ethic. Consent, that is the ethical standard for Generation Z. Um, there is a rise in Generation Z of something called the nuns. And I don't mean nuns like in the black habits, N-U-N-S. Nuns as in zeros, N-O-N-E-S. Here's what I mean by that. They claim no religious affiliation. And I'm not meaning just kids that say, well, I just go to church on Christmas and Easter. I mean, they just, there's no affiliation. None. 34%. Now, is that a hindrance to discipleship or is it our greatest opportunity yet? Kids who will not allow themselves to be defined culturally by spirituality, but are claiming honestly, authentically where they are. And again, is it that they have rejected the gospel or they simply haven't heard it in their language? And what I would offer is that we just need to do a better job of preaching the gospel in a language that they hear and a language they understand. Um, Parents, 
Uh, one of the things we know about Gen Z is that they're being raised largely by Gen Xers. Um, we know with Gen Xers a little bit about how they're wired, so that can give us some indication of how they're going to parent and what the products of their, you know, what their kids are going to be like. Um, but where it's mixed right now is that some uh, some Gen Xers are being very hands off with their kids because they were latchkey kids. They they've kind of like been very hands off with their kids. Some of them, though, have heard, you know, like, um, and some of them don't want to be helicopter parents, so they're hands-off, while others are very, very involved in the lives of their kids. So this is going to be a mixed generation, it seems, on parenting influences. Um, when, when we uh, talk to youth pastors, uh, they say that the two big issues they deal with, the two kind of roadblocks, the two biggest challenges, maybe, with Generation Z are social media and moral relativism. Those are the challenges we're facing. All right, let me, let me give some things that I think are worth considering when we're discipling uh, Generation Z. One, the power of testimony. Brands are now going to find Generation Z people to be the spokespeople for their brand. Because brands are finding that if you tell a story that their peers are already telling, they will listen. We should be finding Gen Z and putting them on the platform to give their testimonies because that's who their peers are going to listen to. I think we need to think about the resource of technology. Technology is a resource. It isn't a morally good thing. It's not a morally bad thing. It is morally neutral. The way we interact with it is what is good or bad. If we understand technology and we leverage it correctly for kingdom purposes, we don't we partner with it. We don't let it control us. We control it. We're not slaves to it. We don't find salvation in it, but we also don't shun it. We partner with it to find new ways to spread the gospel. I think creating community, face-to-face community, giving opportunities for that so they come up for air from this to looking at people face-to-face. We just did a youth uh, retreat at our church, and what we kept hearing from kids is, hey, can we do this again next weekend? And the youth pastor's like, just call your friend and go hang out. They don't know how to create community amongst themselves because their heads are down in here. Help them create community. Teach on identity. They need to understand that they are created in the image of God and that with that comes responsibility. There's that, with great power comes great responsibility. Like they need to understand That because they are human beings created in God's image, that they carry a very important weight of responsibility. And they need to view other people that way. The people that they're bullying online are people made in the image of God. I think identity is one of the main things we need to teach Generation Z in. I think that we need to, um, I think our perspective can help teach them patience and long perspective uh, very practically, I think that we need to look at the images we use in, in when we say this is who we are as a church. Image is very important. Marketers right now know that with Generation Z, if you don't have a big picture and five compelling words, they're not paying attention. Is the church giving Generation Z a big picture and five powerful, compelling words? 
I think we need to show diversity in those images and in that marketing. Two-way dialogue is very important, giving them an opportunity for their voice to be heard. And what I've found is anytime I engage in conversation and I listen, I learn something too. Um, I think giving positive and uplifting messages, being real and authentic. Transparency is incredibly high with this generation. They have really good BS filters. Just be yourself. Don't try to be cool. Don't wear skinny jeans. Just be yourself. They don't need more people like them. They want people that have age and wisdom that can be passed down. And I would also say if you're in a, a situation where you're on a church staff and you can help frame the messages from the platform, do not shy away from hard topics. Preach hard stuff. We've done three sermon series at NCC this year. One uh, was titled God in the Hands of Angry People. It was a little play on Jonathan Edwards, Sinners in the Hands of Angry Gods, and we, we just, in the Hands of Angry God, and, and we just talked about what happens when angry people get a hold of God and try to use God for their own advancement. It was an incredibly powerful sermon series. We did another sermon series on the seven, church, uh, the seven letters to churches in Revelation. And when you dig into the culture and the background on those letters, you find that the world that they were living in is very similar to the world we live in today. And it's very relevant and it resonated. We did a series on being a neighbor. And I mean, we went hard with people on who is, the neighbor, who is your neighbor? How do you love them? When we, we found that when we go to difficult, challenging places, it resonates with the generations coming behind us. I think what we need to teach Generation Z theologically is really simple stuff. There is a God who loves you. There is a truth that can be known. This is who you are. This is the world we live in. And this is what Jesus wants to do in the world that we live in. Very quickly, Generation Alpha, and this is kind of fun. Most of them have not been born yet, so we don't even know the historical markers that are going to shape them. What we do know are two influences that they will have. We know who their parents are going to be. They're going to be largely parented by millennials. And what we have seen so far is there has never been a tighter bond between a generation and their children than millennials and alphas. I'm a little bit of an older, I'm, well, let's be real. I'm not a little bit. I'm a lot of an older parent. I was 41 when Sawyer was born. Um, so I'm, I'm a Gen X parenting an alpha, but most of them will be parented by millennials. There is a very tight bond between millennials and their children. It's almost borderline obsessive. With 22 millennial parents in the U.S. today, that means 9,000 generation alpha babies are born uh, every day. It's a lot of alpha babies. Um, and alphas will have the oldest parents of any generation, <laughs> with Sawyer's being on the upper end. Um, so, so think about this. Uh, it, uh, this is the generation that was born the same year the iPad was released. So think about technology. So boomers learned computers at work. Gen X learned them in middle school, high school. Gen Z, or I'm sorry, millennials learned them in elementary school. Gen Z learned them at home. Alphas will not be able to remember a time that they didn't have it in their hand. They never will learn it. They just have it. Most of Sawyer's peers have their own iPads. We've been actually pretty intentional about not giving Sawyer an iPad, not giving her our phone. Somehow she still knows how to work the thing. It's like something has genetically shifted in the brains. 
They will never know a world where apps did not exist. Most of them will have digital footprints before they know what the term means. Most of them are growing up as internet and social media celebrities. This kid, right, wrong, indifferent, has fans. Now, granted, many of them know her and are investing in her life and are discipling her. But when you talk about the pressure that the millennials felt culturally, it is escalating with alphas. There are some futurists, this is just kind of fun. It doesn't really help us necessarily know how to disciple, but this is interesting. Some futurists um, are predicting that the alpha generation will not have a smartphone. That searching for things on a smartphone will be archaic technology because by that point, we will all have technology in our watches or somewhere else that is doing that work for us. Think about the Alexa we have in our home right now. Think about bots that are going out, getting information, and delivering it back to us. The idea is that in 20, 30, 50 years, we'll be sitting in a meeting with our peers, and there will be a bot that will be listening to that conversation and say, Heather, in the conversation, you concluded by saying that you needed to meet back up in a week to discuss X, Y, and Z. I've checked everybody's calendar and put the meeting on for you. Now, that sounds a little bit too Jetsons to me. Like, okay, yeah, we were supposed to be in hovercraft by now as well, and we're not. But the technology is there. And here's the question. What is that going to do to community? What is it going to do to the college student who goes away from home for the first time, and they come into an empty apartment building, and all they have to talk to is, it won't be Alexa, but something like that. Will this poor generation begin to develop relationships with entities that have no soul? I don't know what to do about that right now except to fast and pray and seek wisdom. We need wisdom from God on the next generation. I just want to end by, by kind of saying this. I think there are four gifts that we give to the next generation. I've already kind of mentioned some of these when I talked about millennials. One, we can give them the gift of place. This, these, these generations don't have a sense of place because they belong everywhere Social media has given them a place to belong everywhere, yet they don't have anywhere that they belong. Give them a sense of place. Open up your door and let them know what it feels like to be a family. Give them your presence. Again, being with them. Three, give them perspective. Generation Z has lots of energy and muscle to row the boat. They need us to look to the stars and teach them how to navigate. Perspective. And then finally, permission. We need to give the, the generations coming behind us permission to ask hard questions, to fail, to doubt, to be different, to have another opinion. Doubt does not kill faith. Silence does. What if the church was the place you brought your hard questions, was the place you brought your doubts, because it was the place that allowed those to have a seat at the table. Answer questions with questions. That's not a cop-out. It's just the way Jesus did it. And then it encourages that two-way dialogue. What if the church was the safest place for people to wrestle with mental illness? What if the church was the most empowering place for women? 
Like, what if a little girl thought, you know what? I'm having trouble getting time off the bench to play in my t-ball team, but I know when I go to church, they give me opportunities. Now, look, I know that we have different theological perspectives, but what I would ask you to do is take it as far as your theological perspective allows you to go. Give women as much opportunity as your theology allows you to go. What if the church was the most welcoming place for newly resettled refugees? Look, we can have differences of opinions about borders and immigration and refugee policy, but once they are here legally, what if the church was the most welcoming place? Maybe, just maybe, the gospel would finally go to that elusive 1040 window that we were praying about 30 and 40 years ago. What if the gathering of the people of God was the most diverse gathering in society? I think these are the things that future generations want to see. That's the things they find compelling and intriguing and exciting. And I think if we run hard after God and ask for his heart, and we do the hard work of making disciples, we can see that day become a reality. I, does this thing end at 5 or 5.15? Okay, good. <laughs> All right, we want to, I think... Are you up for questions? Yes, we'll do some questions. Dave will answer all, them all. No, I will not. Uh, first, I want to thank you for just uh, bringing to light that it's okay that each generation is different. Um, I think overall we fight that. Mm -hmm. Even me, like my sisters, they're Gen Z. You know, like we're same house, totally different. Um, we grew up in the same house in yep. different culture. So, but I can't look at her and say, that's dumb. Right. You, um, so you seem Well, to, you can, but yeah. yeah. <laughs> it, doesn't go, it doesn't go over well. She's taller than me. Um, <laughs> uh, so as it seems like your church gets it and is implementing it well, what would be your advice to other churches? What's that first step. I know you said like giving them the platform now. Would that be like intentionally, I know we're in a discipleship conference, intentionally is like, is that the thing? Like, hey, you got the power of influence. You need to use it. Like, is that it? Yeah, I think that's a lot of it. I think the, a, for a good first step is just to invite millennials into your home and just ask them questions. <laughs> invite Gen Z into your home. You might say, I don't know any Gen Z. Talk to your youth pastor. If you promise a house with pizza, Gen Z will show up. Actually, I don't even know. You might have to have like hummus and <laughs> gluten-free stuff. But, but if you promise food, food of some sort, and just listen. I've, I've found that the people I am most drawn to, that I want to be mentored by, are the people that I, I can't hardly get a question in because they're asking me questions. Like Dan Sneed is one, and there's another mentor of mine at our church, Dick Foth, that like every time they're with me, they're asking me questions. I'm like, stop. I want to learn from you. And so just gathering some kids around you and asking them questions, and then I, I know it is really risky, but finding ways you can put them physically, when I'm talking platform, I mean physical, not just metaphorical, putting them on a platform, letting them give a testimony about their youth overnight. Um, I recently said to our teaching team at NCC that I was concerned that many of our, our, all of our teaching team had now entered their 40s. 
And I think it's really important that we continue to have 20-year-olds and 30-year-olds that are preaching the word. Now, again, and I know we're all thinking, oh, no. (laughs) But that's where make disciples comes in. Are we willing to say, hey, I want you to manuscript your sermon and then send it to me two weeks ahead of time. And then we're going to go over it. And then you're going to get up and practice it. And then I'm going to give you feedback. And we're going to do this together. You had mentioned about YouTube and, and learning skills on YouTube and everything now. And I know, like with my parents and my grandparents, a big way that they connected with the younger generation was teaching a skill. Yep. Uh, hey, woodworking or changing the oil in your car, anything like that. Yep. And now that skills can be found so easily on YouTube, you mentioned the transition to needing to teach wisdom. How do we, how do we open the doors for that as, as a more natural flow than teaching the skills as that used to be that doorway? Yeah, and I would say that the teaching of the skills, they, they're still wanting to come to older generations to do that. They just don't have to anymore. So we have a, a dinner at our house every Sunday night, and it's largely millennials. And my husband cooks every Sunday night. He's a much better cook than me. And there will be millennials, guys and girls, in our kitchen learning from him. And some of them will tell us, this is the only hot meal I get all week. Um, They're learning from him. So the skills is still an opportunity. Like at your church, just having even some kind of an event where you're teaching woodworking. I mean, some people are just going to be intrigued by that. And then the wisdom questions can come after that and a part of that. Do you remember, Heather, the time you had me come and hang with your staff? And there was a girl on her team by the name of (laughs) Megan. Do you know where this is going? Do. do you want to finish it? No, I want you. I, okay. I like it when you tell it. It's right. funnier. So Megan is a millennial, and she. So language that I often use is the ways of God. It's how God does things. And so Megan just asks a question, very sincere. She said, she had her pad out and a pen. Pen. She said, could you just give me all the ways of God now? <laughs> like she just wanted sincere. a list. Just yeah. give me a list. Yeah, totally she probably sincere. went home and Googled it. Yeah. Because you didn't give her a list. Um, you mentioned before talking about like how how far your theology allows you to go, kind of uh, maybe making an assumption that different people have different theologies about that. And I would say for a lot of churches, theology has changed for them or progressed over the last hundred years or whatever. When it comes to discipling uh, millennials and Gen Z, if you're discipling those and their theology allows something that yours doesn't like if their theology might uh, like they see gay marriage as like something that's totally straight or whatever sorry it's totally cool or whatever um and <laughs> my bad <laughs> but they they see that it like it, it's whatever you know like it is what it is but then for you you're trying to disciple this individual what's the like what's the balance for you it's like could it be that theology is shifting and they might have something that we don't understand that God has revealed? Or do you think, no, we need to bring it back yeah. to where it used to be and stuff? That's a great question. And I don't know that there's an easy, that's a whole other track that we need to have, honestly. Uh, I do think, I try to walk in humility and humble confidence, like together. Um, let me put it this way. My, my theology on sexuality has not changed. But the posture and the tone that I use has. And I will say, I did do some digging a few years ago. To ma- I wanted to make sure I wasn't getting this wrong. I did a lot of reading and a lot of listening um, because, because here's the thing, particularly on this issue, if we're getting it wrong on either side, 
the potential for hurt and the potential for, yeah, really, really difficult damage and division is so strong. So I actually did go through a season where I, I said, God, um, I want to stand on your word and I want to walk in wisdom, but I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to take an, a new, fresh look at this. And so I read theologians that have a very different perspective than me. They, have, they've, they understand the writing of Paul differently than I do, and it would allow for gay relationships and gay marriage. Um, here's what I found with young people in particular, and I think the way we address this with like middle school students is different than how we address it with high school students, is different than how we address it with college and beyond. And I would say that when I'm talking to a youth, it's not that they have a different theology. They haven't thought about it theologically. They've only thought about it personally and relationally or legally. And even that, oh gosh, we've got all kinds of different nuances that we can go here. So what Gen Z is finding is they're both, in, and these are kids in the church. I, we had a kid recently in our youth group that came out. And our kids who are leaders, like our youth leaders, like they are committed to Jesus. They are, they're actually kind of trying to be theologians. They felt both incredibly compassionate and conflicted. They didn't know how they were supposed to respond. Am I supposed to celebrate? And if I'm celebrating, am I, am I celebrating their courage? Am I celebrating their authenticity? Am I celebrating their choice? Or is celebrating not godly? So when I'm, when I'm talking to kids, I'm, I'm, try, I'm trying to help them think theologically. Because a lot of times they're not thinking theologically. They're just thinking culturally. Um, and so we'll do a deep dive in scripture. But what I want youth to know is even if you come to a different decision on this, a different perspective, um, I love you and we're going to keep walking together. Um, but I would just say, I, I would say walk in a lot of humility because um, we could be wrong. The church has been wrong plenty. Galileo lost his head because his church was wrong. So, and and Heather's not making that statement on necessarily the sexuality issue, but just any issue. Yes, right. It's just any issue. It's like, is there enough humility? Because I, one of my dearest friends in the world, uh, about uh, doing the math in my head, twelve years ago, decided he was jumping into the gay lifestyle, and he pleaded with me, and he said, "Would you take one other look at this?" And so like Heather, I did. And I came away with the same conclusion of what I think the scriptures say, but have continued to have relationship. See, because if you don't have relationship, you know, there's no way to whether enjoy them as a person, be available. And it was really interesting because I got caught in a pickle. Here's why. This very dear friend, I know his kids. I, I was a best man in his wedding. And then when his wife passed away, she, just before she passed away, she came, she said, would you come do my funeral? And she said, I know what my husband made decide to go back into. He did. Uh, I'm just thinking timing now. Uh, four months ago, I saw on Facebook, he was flying. I know his kids. And one of his kids was dying, 33 years of age. And so I felt like the Lord said, pick up the phone and call him right now. And I did, and I got him in the Charlotte airport on the way, tears he had. And I walked with him for 14 days as his daughter passed away. And they brought her back to Hawaii and buried her. And, you know, really how they do that in Hawaii, celebrating her life at sea, kind of sprinkling the ashes. And so I'm, I'm 
engaging him and all this. And then um, I'm just thinking of timing two months later on Facebook, all of a sudden there's an announcement that he's marrying another um, gay priest. And it's like, it's just a weird. And so I, it's much easier for me to meet somebody now who's in that lifestyle and relate to them than a friend that you've had for 40 some years who's kind of had to walk this. But at one point he said, if you, do we just need to cut our relationship off? And I said, no, I'm not asking for that. I want to stay in it. And so you guys, it, it's, it's key that we stay in it. Why? Because Jesus would. Jesus hung out with people who thought different, who were sinners, and he didn't get compromised. And neither do we have to get compromised. But do I still love him as my friend? He knows. I told him, he said, you know, I, I, can't, I can't go there with you on this. He said, I know. You know, and he understands that. But we can still have a friendship. And you guys, it does it, it, and I'm saying it's not easy. Like my wife is the one that knows it. Sometimes I'll tell my staff, but it's like, how am I supposed to do this? You know, because internally I have this conviction and at the same time, like, no, Jesus would relate. Yeah, so the question is, you know, with, with moral relativism being one of the most challenging markers of, I mean, really, I would say millenniums, millennials, generation Z and, and after, how do you teach truth when there's no category for that? And I think, I, I, I don't know. Here's, here's what I'm trying to do. I'm trying to encourage people to follow Jesus, Jesus is the way, the truth, and the life, and I'm just banking on that. I'm banking on the idea that if they follow him, the intellectual truth stuff will shake out to where it's supposed to go. Like, Jesus, Jesus didn't say, have your theology in order. He said, follow me. And I think if people walk in the footsteps doing the things that Jesus did the way that he did them the morality and the theology will fall into place a little bit. And I'm not saying that we shouldn't talk theology and we shouldn't talk apologetics because those things actually are very, uh, the, the generations coming after us are very intrigued by that. They want to talk about theology. They want to talk about, about apologetics. In fact, what's tripping up the next generation isn't so much some of these moral questions. It's can we believe that the Bible is historically accurate? And, and how could a good, job, a good God have commanded the genocide of the conquest like though though they're asking those questions and i keep just trying to redirect to follow jesus what has jesus asked you to do today are you loving your neighbor are you you know are you walking in obedience are you on your knees in prayer like those things and, and i just there's a part of me that just hopes that the the categories of morality will sink in as they're following jesus yeah. now dave will tell you the right answer no no i was going to say that all right <laughs> And, and the only other piece I would add to that is um, we have to engage in relationship. Because oftentimes when somebody is doing something that we disagree with or see a sin or deception or whatever, we can oftentimes do this. All right? And, and when the woman is being caught in, in adultery, Jesus leans in. See? And, and so there's a place there, I think, exact, and I agree with Heather. It's like if you have someone follow Jesus... Who he is becomes more their thinking and more their heart. They align to the biblical truths. But it's, it's a process. And, and with the, the insight that Heather's provided you with of why generations think the way they do, 
I, I hope you can take some of this away and realizing it's just kind of goofy out there right now. <laughs> and, and you have to be able to be a little more intentional. And, and I don't mean this as like, here's Dave's answer to it all. But for me, as a guy that often is with 20s and 30-somethings, and now I'm a papa to you know, Generation Alpha, you know what you know wins the day for me 100% of the time is relationship. If you're willing to have a relationship with someone, a lot of stuff can happen. You've been listening to the Disciple Makers Podcast. That message was from LionShare's track at the National Disciple Making Forum. Make sure to download the free PDF summary from Dave Buring. It's called Process of Transformation. Download it at discipleship.org slash lionshare. You'll find dozens of other great discipleship resources at discipleship.org as well. May the Lord bless you as you seek to grow as a disciple maker. Disciple Maker.